The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. In all the years that I've worked on innocence cases, I've never heard a story like Marty Tankliff's. His wrongful conviction is one of the most unbelievable things that's happened in criminal law. At first blush, his account seems far-fetched and totally fabricated, but I assure you, it's 100% real. Full disclosure, Marty is a friend of mine. What you're about to hear is stranger than fiction. This story is complicated, involving many people across a vast timeline, and the details can be difficult to keep track of. It is one of the most iconic examples of how trauma and a tough interrogation can lead to a false confession. Marty grew up in Beltaire, a small town on Long Island, New York. His father was an entrepreneur who invested in a variety of businesses and had done pretty well for himself. Unfortunately, there was also a criminal element in town that had leached into positions of power. Marty's father unintentionally crossed paths with those unsavory characters, and it would lead to a lot of trouble for him. And eventually, that trouble would come for Marty, too. And at the time, he was only 17 years old. What you're about to hear is told by Marty Tankliff himself. I'm Michael Samanchik, managing attorney for the California Innocence Project, and you're listening to Marty's Story. Spend most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free My name is Marty Tankoff. I am a New York State exoneree who served almost 18 years in prison in New York State. And now I am an attorney in New York State. I'm also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and an adjunct professor at Toro Law School. I grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood where you know, I had my own room, cars, boats. I lived near a beach. I had a good life as a kid. The day I was arrested was September 7th of 1988. The night before, my father held a high-stakes poker game, and one of the attendees was Jerry Sturman. Jerry Sturman was somebody that my father had loaned over a half a million dollars, and during the summer of 88, my father started to demand the money back. And little did I know that there were significant problems between my father and Jerry. My father had invested in bagel stores. My father, growing up, was an entrepreneur, he became, he owned an own insurance company, and after he had sold the insurance company, he started investing in other businesses, from an alarm company to a gym to the bagel stores. You know, what I know now is that the reason why my father started to demand the money back is he realized that the bagel stores were partially a money laundering operation because Jerry Sturman's Todd was a drug dealer, a high-level drug dealer with cocaine, pot, and other narcotics. Just a quick note about Todd. Todd Stewerman was Jerry Stewerman's son. As you just heard, he was a drug dealer, a fact very much known to law enforcement because he was arrested in front of one of the bagel stores in question. Marty's father did not want criminal entanglement with his business interests, and so it led to a major conflict between him and his business partner, Jerry Stewerman. Marty's father wanted to recoup his investment and cut ties with the bagel stores altogether. A few weeks before what happened, Jerry Struman and my father had some kind of blowout. And after that, my father had told my Uncle Mike 
who is the family attorney, who is my godfather, he goes, Jerry's not going to fuck with me because I know where the bones are buried. Now, I didn't know about it back then, but knowing everything I know now and piecing together everything over the years, I honestly believe is my father realized that the bagel businesses weren't just bagel businesses. They were money laundering businesses, and my father wanted out. In one of the many complicated twists for this story, Marty's father would routinely host high-stakes poker games at his home. For some reason, and despite the declining business relationship, Jerry Stuerman was one of his guests for poker night. At the time, the full extent of these conflicts was not known to Marty. But on September 7, 1988, he would wake up to a horrifying scene after one of his father's poker games. Supposed to be my first day of senior year. Senior high school. Senior high school. August 29th of that year, I had just turned 17. September 7th was supposed to be my first day of senior year of high school, which should have been a great day. But instead, I woke up, and almost immediately, I knew something was off. Uh, The house lights were still on. The outdoor lights were still on. And I walk out of my room, and I walk past the front door, and the front door was open. And, you know, my father held poker games before. And anytime I woke up the morning after, the house was locked up, the alarm was set, the outdoor lights were off. That wasn't the case this morning. And when I started walking through the house, I kind of just went room to room to room, and eventually ended up at the last room, which was where the poker game was. And my father was in his office chair, bleeding and clinging to life. Wow. Was he responsive? or Not he... verbally responsive at all. But I knew he was alive because I could hear kind of, um, I guess you would say gagging or gurgling noises. Um, I called 911. I performed first aid. And then I went looking for my mother, and I saw my mother on the floor in their bedroom. And my mother was dead. Marty had no idea what happened. He went to bed looking forward to his first day of school and wakes up to his family being murdered. He was traumatized, confused, and desperately needed help. When help arrived, he immediately became a person of interest. Marty is only 17 years old and is completely unaware of the danger he's in. Uh, And it was about shortly after that, the police arrived. And it was from there, they just, what I I tell people is that essentially I was kidnapped. From their point of view, I was the person they were going after, and there was no turning back. The the problem really becomes is that K. James McCready, who was the lead detective, showed up first. We later learned that he wasn't the homicide detective on duty. We also learned that on his way to the scene, he knew there was a poker game there the night before. And, you know, we later learned how he knew that. And how he knew that was that he was associated with Jerry Stewartman. So we actually didn't find out about how McCready wasn't the assigned detective because uh, the DA's office never disclosed it to us. Uh, My Aunt Marianne filed a Freedom of Information request to get documents. And it was in one of the documents that she received that showed who the lead homicide should have been. And it wasn't McCready. That morning, McCready was at his construction site where he had a second job, and he showed up. And that was something I don't think I learned until after I was convicted because the prosecutors withheld those documents. And it wasn't until my aunt filed their freedom of information that she got those documents. This detail about McCready being the assigned detective is important because according to the precinct's procedure, he was not supposed to be investigating this case. In order for him to be the lead detective, 
he had to break procedure and force himself into the investigation. And based on what Marty just told us, his relationship with Jerry Stewerman, a possible suspect, would not have been appropriate. Here's more on how that played out. From his immediate involvement, there was deception, there was hiding, there were lies. I was brought several yards, probably maybe 100 yards away from the driveway to my house, where I was questioned on top of a police car. And I remember at one point we started talking about family members and Mike Fox. And Mike Fox was my godfather, he was also the family attorney. And at one point, I saw Mike's car pull up. And I remember saying, oh, there's Mike. And I remember McCready just jetting off. And all of a sudden, McCready comes back and Mike left. And I didn't know what happened then, but I later learned that Mike told McCready, listen, I don't want Marty spoken to. Mike gave him his business card. And McCready at a later point said to Bob Gottlieb, who was my trial lawyer, well, you know, Mike Fox never said the magic words criminal attorney. And if you understand McCready and his history, that's the games that they played. Just a quick note on what's going on here. Mike Fox, the family attorney, is trying to exercise Marty's right to remain silent for him. We don't know why Mike didn't just talk to Marty at that time about his rights and advise him to wait for representation before talking with the police. Perhaps he thought that in a small town where everyone knows each other, his request would have been honored. Truth be told, Mike is not in the best position to exercise Marty's rights. Marty is the best person for that. And the big lesson here is that everyone, children included, need to ask for attorneys before communicating with investigators. As we will soon hear, Marty not being aware of his rights and how to use them will punish him for decades to come. You know, progressively gets worse that morning when... They knew that people were looking for me. They knew that my family was at the hospital. They knew that I was supposed to go to the hospital. And, you know, Suffolk County had a long, troubled history of interrogations, of hiding people and being deceitful. And McCready employed one of those tactics. Instead of using his radio to communicate with people, he drove away from my house, went to downtown Port Jefferson, and used a payphone to communicate with people. And that's so there wouldn't be a recording of where I was or what was happening to me. In 1988, we had no idea that McCready and Jerry Sturman actually had any relationship whatsoever. We just knew something was off. And one of the reasons why we knew something was off is that a few days after I was arrested, uh, my father was clinging to life. Jerry Sturman faked his death. He cleaned out a joint bank account that was with my parents and him. He told his family he'd be swimming with the fish. He faked his death. He broke a chain. He fled from New York to New Jersey, from New Jersey to California. He fled under one of his five aliases that he had. And when he got to California, he went to a men's hair club because he had a hair weave and it wasn't a club that he belonged to. He had his hair changed. He ended up hiding out in a psychiatric retreat. And in 1988, he claims that he called his wife and said the word pistachio, which was his favorite ice cream, to let his family know he was alive. And Jerry was considered a missing persons. But there's only one thing that was very odd. Who do you think went out to retrieve him from California? McCready. So instead of somebody from the missing persons department, they sent the lead detective who 
we later learned we had a relationship with my father's business partner, Jerry Stuerman. So during my post-conviction proceeding, based on the witnesses who testified, one of the murderers was Joseph Creedon. His son testified. And during his son's testimony, he testified that McCready was paid $100,000 to focus on me and kind of go away from other people. Just to keep all the names and events straight, according to multiple witnesses, two hitmen, Joseph Creedon and Peter Kent, were hired to kill Marty's parents by Jerry Stewerman. It is believed by some that both Jerry and his son Todd Stewerman were at the Tankliff house coordinating the murders on that fateful night. And true to form for this bizarre crime story, the son of Joseph Creedon, Joseph J. Garasio, verified these facts in his sworn affidavit to the court, testifying against his father, murder, bribery, and all, when he was only 17. Ironically, he was the same age as Marty when he was wrongfully arrested. You simply can't make this stuff up. And if you look at the conduct of everybody involved, how everybody acted, I mean, cleaning out a joint bank account, I mean, how many innocent people have five aliases? How many innocent people flee the jurisdiction? That's suspect number one. Right. The problem is, is McCready really didn't do his job as an investigator. He was paid $100,000 to focus on me. And what reinforces my belief in that is that when McCready was on the Dr. Phil show, he was asked about that. And he goes, well, if that's the case, where's the other 50000 It was just one of those things. I mean, it was so surreal that the Dr. Phil show never even aired that segment, that part wow. of it, because it was kind of one of those ones that was like, what did he just say? There are a lot of truth being stranger than fiction moments in Marty's story, and it highlights how incredible some of these cases can be. But if you think about it, what would any person or group have to do in order to convince a jury that a 17-year-old kid who grew up well-to-do in a nice small town decided out of the blue one day to kill his parents, and that same kid had no record of violent behavior in his childhood? So amazing as it seems, a shady businessman faking his own death and a detective admitting to a bribe on the Dr. Phil show are all par for the course in this story. Even though there were a lot of holes in the beginning, law enforcement quickly built a case against Marty. The evidence was faulty, but investigators could still make up for it in the interrogation room. Unfortunately, Marty was still in custody, talking with Detective McCready, and he was about to make a critical error. And that one misstep would take his defense from bad to hopeless. He basically takes me from my house, avoids having my family and friends know where I was because they were told, oh, Marty's on the way to the hospital. And I was driven probably 45 minutes to an hour away to police headquarters in Yapank. And I was put into a interrogation room. It's a room away from everybody, no windows, very little furniture, uh, the furniture is metal, cold, dark, big rings for handcuffs. But what's really tragic about what happened in my case is Suffolk County actually had policy and procedures in place in 1988 for recording interviews and interrogations, especially in homicide cases. And McCready just chose to ignore them. Wow. And I've always said... Had there been a recording, I don't care if it was audio, video of what happened in that interrogation room, I may not have served almost eight years in prison. 
And I really believe that's why it's so important to have electronic recording of not just interrogations, not just everything, everything. It benefits everybody. And what's interesting is McCready was asked, you know, why didn't you record it? And his answer was, well, the way I conduct my interrogation will be different because I have to be cautious because now I'm being recorded. So just to sum things up, Detective McCready broke procedure by forcing his way into the investigation, even though it was not his turn. And he kept Marty's whereabouts a secret by staying off the radio. McCready also broke procedure when he didn't record Marty's interrogation. He then later admits if the interrogation was recorded, he would have done it much differently. To say the very least, these deviations from the norm look suspicious. Questioning starts kind of very much like it was at the house. What do you know? Where were you yesterday? What's going on? And then it just starts to gradually build kind of beyond that. You know, what was my life like? What were my hobbies? And then all of a sudden it gets to a point where the tone starts to change a little bit. And then it was McCready doing what we all know is the fake phone call. He leaves the room, leaves the door open enough, and I'm in the room with his party, Detective Ryan, Norman Ryan. And he comes back in after having this conversation. I don't really remember kind of what he was saying on the phone, but he comes back in. He goes, Marty, he goes, they pumped your father full of adrenaline, and he identified you as the person who attacked him. So he just wants you to tell us what happened. And it was at that moment, I was like, there's no way. I'm like, I didn't do this. I'll take a polygraph exam. And it was from that moment on, I was never leaving that room. I've heard this time and time again that interrogators say that, you know, when we get the suspect in the box, they're not leaving until they get what they want. And thinking back on it, that's what happened. That moment was the moment that there was no leaving. There was no escaping. There was no walking out of there until they got what they want. Law enforcement in the United States is allowed to lie to suspects and witnesses. Most people don't know that, but it's true. They're even allowed to lie about not being allowed to lie. Imagine being in that interrogation room as a traumatized 17-year-old kid. Your mother has been murdered, and your father is dying. You were taken away from your family and put through hours and hours of interrogation. You're tired. You're scared. And you've just heard that your own father thinks you attacked him. You've been raised to trust police officers, and all of this comes crashing down on you suddenly. Even for a mature adult, this would be a disorienting experience. Marty did his best with the police, but as we'll hear shortly, he was in serious jeopardy. Every single question, I was kind of like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do this. I'll take a polygraph. You know, maybe my father just remembers me from doing first aid. It's like, Marty, that's not what we want to hear. We just want to hear, you know, you did this. And, you know, I don't remember every single question, but I remember kind of the, the, the way the questions happen. You know, they said I, I used a watermelon knife because there was a knife sitting next to watermelon in the kitchen, which was right next to where the poker game was. And I remember saying, oh, Marty, you know, you, you know we saw some pink material on the knife. So you, you used the knife to kill your parents. And I'm like, I, I didn't kill my parents. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, Marty, just, just tell us you'd use the knife. I remember getting to the point, I'm like, listen, if you say I did it, maybe I did do it. Like, it just got to the point where I knew my heart and soul, I didn't do anything wrong, but your world just comes crushing down on you. I grew up kind of trusting in law enforcement. I grew up trusting my father. And now I have a lead detective looking at me saying, my father just identified me. And it got even worse where at one point they said, Marty, we know you did this because we have your hair and your mother's hands. 
So, you know, you've kind of got this buildup of lies, but I was in such a disassociated state, not really comprehending what was going on. Like, this can't be real. Like, I know I didn't do anything, but here I am. I'm supposed to trust law enforcement, trust my father. I'm getting kind of, you know, detectives saying, listen, Marty, we know you did this. And it's just building. And no matter what I said, it didn't matter to them. You know, it, unless it was what they wanted to hear, it didn't matter what I said. I could say, listen, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do this. No, like, Marty, that's not what we want to hear. Just say yes. Just tell us yes. And I just remember hours of this taking place. You know, it felt like forever being in that interrogation room. And, you know, throughout that day in the back of my head, I kept saying, like, this can't be real. This can't be real. Like, today's my first day of school. This is supposed to be a happy day. Investigators would eventually wear Marty down into giving a false confession. None of it was recorded, nor did Marty sign anything. But the account was documented in handwriting by Detective McCready himself. This was the only evidence of the confession used at trial. And as we'll hear, it gave law enforcement what they wanted. So what's interesting about it is that they got what they want to a certain extent because uh, there was nothing ever written in my handwriting. There was no audio. There was no video. I never signed anything. And they claimed that they had to stop because Mike Fox finally got through to somebody and said, where the fuck is Marty? I told you don't talk to him. If you're interrogating him, stop. And they stopped. And I remember the first time I saw kind of a written confession, which was in McCready's handwriting, was months later at the Huntley hearing. And it was like two and a half pages, three pages. And I remember every law enforcement person I've ever spoken to said, it's fake. And I go, what do you mean it's fake? He goes, we would never waste our time writing two or three pages of a statement if we couldn't get the suspect just to initial the Miranda Rights section in the first paragraph, which is not what we do. And they had this, what they called an oral confession, but every fact that they had in there was wrong. You know, from the watermelon knife, wasn't a watermelon knife, to me using the dumbbells or barbells, which they tested, which were negative. What Marty is talking about here with the watermelon knife and the barbells is that the handwritten account of his oral confession falsely stated that he used the knife and the barbells to murder his parents. These items were tested, and it was determined that neither one of them could have been used in the attack. Law enforcement knew this, but they proceeded with the false confession anyway. What's even more tragic is about the watermelon knife is that it wasn't until civil depositions after I got out when we deposed the medical examiner who said 25 years ago I told them the watermelon knife could not and wasn't the murder weapon but nobody cared wow nobody cared they took apart the knife and they tested it to I don't know what one one thousandth of a microgram or whatever negative the barbells negative Every piece of forensic evidence they tested was negative for blood, hair, fiber. Everything they tested, there was nothing connecting me whatsoever. Wow. And it progressively gets worse because when the forensics start to come out, there's no drops of blood between one end of the house and the other end of the house. And as my defense lawyer said, you know, if you believe the prosecution's theory, Marty was a 17-year-old kid supposedly naked, who attacks both his parents at complete opposite ends of the house. 
They're both people who are much larger than Marty, much stronger than him, and he leaves no trace of evidence at all in the house. And then they find that there are glove-like prints in blood. And they said, wait a minute, Marty never mentioned gloves. Where are the glove-like prints? There's no trace evidence. And, you know, my defense lawyer says this just makes no sense whatsoever, okay, because there's no way a 70-year-old kid who's supposedly negative could accomplish this with no injuries on him. And I remember it got even so bad because McCready had told one of my aunts I committed the crime, then my mother fought back, and, I, and she told me the story that after I was arrested, I was in the county jail, she came to visit me. She basically like ripped up the sleeves of my shirt and she's like, and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm looking for the injuries on you. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, the detective said you did this and that, and it was her sister. And she's like, my, my, my sister fought back and you know, you should have injuries. And she's looking over me. I'm like, oh, there's no scratches. There's nothing. And she's like, we're being lied to. It's like every turn, everyone was being lied to. Wow. You know, this was, you know, I really hate to call it a wrongful conviction, it's more of an intentional conviction because this was an intentional conduct by so many people to make sure I was found guilty. One of the things about Marty's story is that just when you think it won't get any worse, it suddenly does. The interlaced relationships of small towns can certainly cause huge problems in the criminal justice system. The limited number of people often means overlapping responsibilities, and that can create many conflicts of interest, ethical problems that would never happen in much larger cities. What you're about to hear simply defies belief. I don't even remember like what the next few days were like in the jail. I remember waking up at some point, I was in what they called the suicide watch area. And I stayed there for a few weeks. My father w was still clinging to life. My lawyers were still trying to get me out on bail. And I was eventually released on bail. I believe it was right before my father passed away. Wow. Uh, I was freed on a million dollars bond bail, whatever, back then. Uh, but I was free. I started living with my half-sister. But there's a problem there because my half-sister really didn't benefit financially from my parents' wills. And from the first time I started living with her, she was like, can we change the wills? Can we, you know, she was about money. And might as well just break the ice now. I actually left her house and she ended up becoming very friendly with McCready, the lead detective. And after I was found guilty, she opened up a bar restaurant with McCready and her husband. I'm sure, like me, you can't imagine going into business with a detective who put your half-brother behind bars for at least 50 years. And conversely, if you're a detective, it looks really bad to have a business relationship with a family member of someone you just busted for murder. Marty's half-sister would eventually get his share of inheritance from their parents' estate. And to celebrate her newfound fortune, she used some of that money to throw a party for 60 people at the local country club. As red flag as all of these things were, they didn't catch real attention until much later. But just wait, it gets worse. So if you think about, you know, the people that benefited financially were Jerry Steuben, my father's business partner, McCready, the lead detective who put me in prison, and my half-sister. You know, and I remember when we all found out about this, everybody was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, we asked the DA for a grand jury investigation. They said, wait a minute, like, think about this, right? 
So all these people benefit financially from Marty's conviction, but none of them are suspects. Nobody's ever looking at them. You know, the DA back then didn't want to look at them. So here I was in prison looking at this going, what the fuck? Like, you know, what is going on here? Like, are we missing something here? I mean, I tell everybody, you know, I always ask the question, you know, what's the, the most powerful law firm in any county or the biggest law firm in any county? Most people are like, I have no idea. And I go, yeah, you do. And all of a sudden I go, it's the government, the prosecutor's office, the DA's office. I go, subpoena power, wiretap power, arrest power. They took full advantage of that in my case. Remember what I said about things getting worse? It's about to do exactly that, big time. They opened the case up with by bringing three young girls in to testify, saying, I was at their house a particular day over the summer, and I made a statement to them that was something to the effect that, you know, if my parents weren't around, I could have anything I wanted. And I knew they were lying because they all swore it was on a particular day, and the day that they swore it was, I just got out of the hospital. And I knew they were lying, but we couldn't prove it then. It wasn't until I actually got out, you know, almost 18 years later, that we were able to speak to one of the girls, and she said, yes, we lied. McCready convinced us to lie. Okay. She said one of the things that McCready was doing is they brought them into the evidence locker room right before their testimony and kind of showed them, look at all this evidence, you know, don't you want to help convict Marty? <laughs> you know, I always get people say, this can't be true, right? This can't, ha- this couldn't have happened. I go, you want me to prove it to you in black and white? I go, you know, McCready bringing people into the evidence locker room, the state of New York confirmed that. The girl's lying. You know, one of the girls gave us a declaration. One of them came forward and said, no, we lied. You know, Marty did not say that. Wow. You know, we had evidence. We had jurors and the prosecutor and the judge uh, going to victory parties, playing golf together. Things that you say could never happen in a case happened. You know, I remember we had a bartender come forward and, and identified certain people in my case attending a victory party. And I remember, I don't know if it was the judge or the prosecutor who said, oh, they're all lying. And I said, who in their right mind would inject themselves and make something like that up in a homicide trial? I'm like, if it didn't happen, you wouldn't just make it up. You wouldn't arbitrarily make this up. Right. You, know? you know, it just goes, to, you know, it reminds me of my half sister. After she got the money from my parents' estate, she threw a party. I was in prison two, two and a half years. And how I knew is that she invited my aunt and uncle, and they told me. And I will never forget it because they, you know, my aunt and uncle wrote a letter to, I think it was some media agency about this. And when I was free and we were deposing my half-sister, I sat in on that deposition. And at one point, I, I said to my little Bruce, I said, ask her. And I gave him the letter, I said, ask her. And so he did. He's like, you know, at some point in this year, did you throw a party to celebrate you getting the money? Not exactly. So, you know, as a lawyer, like the not exactly, he kind of kind of run with it. And he just did. And he kind of said, well, what does not exactly mean? You know, what, what, so what did you do? We had a luncheon. Oh, so, so how many people were at this luncheon? Oh, about 60. And where was the luncheon? Oh, at the country club. And who paid for it? Well, I did. Why? Well, to thank people for supporting me. And Bruce was like, well, weren't they supporting you two years ago? You know, this was two years later, and it wasn't until you got the money. And, you know, just it was at that moment you started to realize how evil people were, how money-hungry and money-motivated they were. But the evilness of McCready was so evident that, like, one of the last questions Bruce asked him was like, Detective, I brought a video in here and showed you exactly what happened and showed you it wasn't Marty. 
would you still believe it was Marty? He said, yes. And it just goes to show you the, the mindset of some people in law enforcement that they're right no matter what. You could bring DNA evidence in. You could bring video evidence in. If they say it's you, it's you. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, the one thing I can say is that, you know, when I was free, it was, for me, it was very cathartic that I got to sit on some of the depositions and confront people and just sure. literally stare people down. Um, and people like, why would you do that? Why would you want to be in the same room? I go to basically look him in the eye and say, you tried to kill me. Like, I could have died any day in prison. I'm free. I'm here now. You didn't kill me. Although everything would come out later in the civil trials following Marty's release from prison, many people benefited from him being behind bars. His father's business partner got out of debt. A detective received a bribe. His half-sister finally got Marty's inheritance. But in 1990, the criminal case against Marty was weak. All of the so-called murder weapons were tested and nothing pointed to him. The story didn't make sense. The motive didn't add up. There were other suspects with criminal ties who appeared far more likely than Marty to have committed the murders. The only thing the prosecution had was a forced false confession. But that one thing was enough to convict. And that's how powerful false confessions can be to a jury. Society tends to believe that only guilty people confess. It's difficult for most of us to understand until you've been through it. Marty's case highlights the value of the right to remain silent. It was June 20th, 1990. It was the day I was found guilty. Wow. Yeah. And on October 5th is when I was sentenced to 50 years to life. Wow. And then after the sentencing, it was about two weeks after that I went up to my first state correctional facility. But I remember the sentencing because the, the lawyers were like, listen, Marty, you're getting 50 years. Like this judge is not deviating. He's not going to run a concurrent. He's not going to run 25 years together. This was a tough judge. And he said, he's giving you 50 years. So as, as shocking as that was, it was much easier than the verdict because at least the lawyer said, listen, this is what's going to happen. Whereas, you know, people were like, oh, listen, you know, long the deliberations go, there's no way they can find you guilty, like you're innocent. But nobody really prepares you because I always tell people, I don't think it was that, you know, especially in 1990, how many defense lawyers really knew what it was like to be sentenced to 50 years to life and go to prison? and really understand what it's like to be innocent, be in prison, and not know if the system's ever gonna work itself out. Right. You really don't know. Right. I mean, today I'm one of those people, like, right. you know, when I can talk to people, but in 1990, you're thinking, am I gonna get out of it? Like, am I gonna survive prison? Like, I'm this young white kid, you know, 140, 130 pounds, you know, going into these maximum security prisons, like, the first thing I'm thinking is, like, I'm never going to survive this. Marty's life would never be the same. He would need to adapt quickly if he was going to survive behind bars. He had no criminal history or experience to call upon. By the time he was sent to prison, Marty was barely an adult. He was 19. If he was going to get out, he would need to learn a lot. Fortunately for Marty... Not everyone believed he was guilty, and he stumbled upon some good advice early on. It was not much, but it was a start. 
So in New York, what you do is you, what I, what they call is a reception center. So I wasn't 17 by then, I was 19. Oh, right. It's been two so years. So this was, I was 17 in 1988. By the time I was sentenced, I was 19. So I went to my first state correctional facility, which was downstate correctional facility. And the way downstate was set up was very interesting. So they have four units. One is a cadre, which is where people stay. Two of them are kind of short-term reception processing. One is long-term. And I didn't know it then, but one of the people at the county jail who believed in me called ahead and said, listen, don't make Marty move around the jail. Just put him into extended classification. But I still remember that day getting up to downstate and really, I guess you could say, getting the shit scared out of me because here I am in the big square. And all of a sudden, with the following people follow us. All of a sudden, it's like one by one by one, and I'm the last one. And all of a sudden, one of us goes, Tankla, follow me. And I was like, oh, God, I'm dead. Like, I, like, I'm dead. And I'm walking through these dark hallways upstairs and just me. There's nobody around. I'm like, okay, I'm going to come around a corner and they're going to kill me. They're going to beat me up. Kind of that, you know, the welcoming you get at some jails. And lo and behold, I ended up into this long-term complex. It didn't happen. But I was put into the long-term extended classification complex because somebody called in ahead and said, don't make Marty suffer. So I was there for a few months. And I remember pretty quickly, somebody came up to me and said, listen, don't become a rat, don't get involved in drugs, don't get involved in homosexuality, and don't gamble. And just keep to yourself as much as possible. And that stuck with me for a long time. And it wasn't until my next state correctional facility that I met somebody who was a former cop who had his own problems. And he said, listen, Marty, he goes, the easiest thing the system can do is convict an innocent person. The hardest thing for them to do is admit a mistake was made and exonerate somebody. He said, spend your time in the law library and fight to get out. Marty would take that advice. He would put in the time to learn his case and law. He would slowly start fitting the pieces together to begin his appeals process. It would take a while, but there would be a gradual shift back in his favor. And that's where we'll pick things up in our next episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Every year, the California Innocence Project receives thousands of letters from those seeking help with wrongful convictions. These cases can take many years and involve dozens of people working on them. CIP needs its law students, lawyers, interns, and staff to have dependable, meticulous, up-to-date record-keeping. Clio's advanced technology maintains a clear file for every innocent client. See how Clio can help your team collaborate effectively at clio.com. 
That's C-L-I-O dot com.